My name is Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Antioch on behalf of our church family. Want to welcome you today. We are going to continue our series going through the book of Hebrews. So if you'll take out your Bibles, we are going through Hebrews and we're learning about developing resilience. Hebrews is an incredible place to learn about that because it was written to a group of Christians who were going through very trying times. It was written to a group of Christians around 67 AD. They were followers of Jesus. They were following Jesus underneath the Roman Empire. And these uh, Christians were of Jewish background. And because of their background and because of the political culture in which they lived, they were experiencing quite an intense persecution for their faith. Many had gone to prison. Many had lost property. It was in this season that leaders within the church were martyred like James and Peter and Paul. And so it was a time of shaking and trial and temptation. And in that midst, these Christians to whom Hebrews was written had a way out, a way out of the pain, a way out of the, of the trials that they were in. And that was by recanting their faith and returning to their previous way of life. If they had done that, they would have been able to get out of the pressure that they were in. And the author of Hebrews writes to them, and the Holy Spirit speaks through these words to the early church and speaks to us today. And he speaks words to them that were meant to strengthen them in their faith, to help them develop the resilience they needed to stay faithful to Jesus in the midst of the trials and temptations that they were facing. And how many of you know we need that same resilience today? Because life is hard. And when we face life's lows, life's letdowns, and life's losses so many times, we can just feel like, oh, I don't have anything left. And Hebrews is written to people like you and me in the midst of challenging circumstances, challenging lives, trials, and temptations. And we believe that the Holy Spirit is going to do what he has been so faithful to do throughout church history. That as we gather around the word of God, that we're not just reading words or learning about concepts, but that the Holy Spirit is going to infuse you and me, the people of Jesus, He's going to infuse us with fresh reservoirs of resilience for the trials and temptations that we face. We are in week seven of this series we're going to be in Hebrews for nine weeks, so we've been through seven. I just want to review with you some of the ways that we've seen that we develop resilience, ways that the Holy Spirit works in our lives to help us develop resilience. We develop resilience through seeing and paying attention to Jesus. That was week one. Resilience starts when we put our eyes on him. When we pay attention to him, we build that spiritual strength. Week two, we learn that we don't just look at Jesus, but that he gives to us. He helps us. Jesus wants to help you in the trial that you're in. Jesus wants to help you in the temptation you're facing. I know that you have lived long enough to know that life is full of trials, and I want you to know that Jesus wants to help you in them. We develop resilience through the giving and receiving of encouragement. When we, as the family of Jesus, when we, as the church, we're intentional to encourage one another and be encouraged by one another. Encouragement literally means to put courage in us. The Holy Spirit puts courage in people through encouragement. As we encourage one another, we develop resilience. We develop resilience through rest. We develop resilience through training. Remember that we're not just a trying church. We're not just trying to follow Jesus, trying to stay faithful. We are training to follow him. 
And as we train, the Holy Spirit builds our spiritual muscles. Last week, we learned that we develop resilience through imitation. That as we imitate the faith of heroes that have gone before us, it strengthens us in the area of resilience. And today, we are going to learn that we develop resilience through good theology. We develop resilience through good theology. So if you're taking notes, that's the title of today's message. I encourage you, have your Bible out, have something to take notes with. I believe God wants to speak to you today, and we develop resilience through good theology. We're going to be reading in Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19. Marshall read a little bit of it earlier. We're just going to read through it. It'll be up on the screen. I encourage you to take it in as we read. Therefore, brothers and sisters... Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, as we read this passage, it is loaded with theological terms. It's loaded with ideas. Some of the passages we've read before are intensely practical, like encourage one another. That's like, let's go and do this. This is more in the realm of ideas, in the realm of theology. He's talking about what they believe, what they think, what is true. That's where he's dealing with today. That's what he's focused on. And there are actions that flow out of those beliefs, those truths. But there's so much here that's just in the world of ideas, of theology, of truth, And you know that ideas are powerful things. The best things in life originate with an idea. You have an idea and you're like, oh, I'm going to go do this or I want to build this or I want to try this. The best thing in life comes from start with in the realm of ideas. Ideas can be blessings, but they can also tear things apart. They can also be fatal. The worst things in life also start out at an idea level. In fact, Vladimir Lenin, the Russian revolutionary, speaking about the power, the fatal power of ideas, said this. He said, ideas are much more fatal things than guns. How many of you know, right, what begins with an idea? He's not making a statement on gun control or lack thereof. He's talking about the ideas that we have can bring out the best in life or they can kill and destroy what goes on in our thoughts. Starts at the realm of ideas. Ideas about God, which we call theology, are even more important, right? Because when we start talking about God, we're talking about first principles. Your vision and understanding, your ideas about God are the place from which you derive your identity, the place from which you derive your sense of right and wrong, the place that you derive what the values of a community are or should be, how communities or states or nations relate to one another. They all stem from our ideas about God. The theologian A.W. Tozer said this. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind 
will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion and that man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Ideas about God uh, have brought about some of the best things in our world, from human rights to hospitals. Those came out of people's theology. And at the same time, ideas about God have brought out incredible destruction in our world through things like Manifest Destiny or 9-11. Blaise Pascal said this. He said, men never do evil so completely and cheerfully as when they do it from religious conviction. I'll say it again. Men, and he's speaking mankind, uh, never do evil so completely and cheerfully as when they do it from religious conviction. Ideas are powerful. Our ideas about God are even more powerful. Our theology matters. And the author of Hebrews begins to speak to these congregations, these churches, about their theology, particularly in the sections that we are reading now. Through Hebrews 7, 8, and 9, and into chapter 10, which we read the summary statement of, the author is writing to the Hebrews and he's speaking to them about the world of ideas, theological ideas in particular, and that their theology about Jesus, because here's what he knows. He knows that we develop resilience through good theology. Our theology matters. And that idea that we develop resilience through good theology actually comes straight from the teachings of Jesus. Jesus taught at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He said, I've given you my teaching. Now, each one of you has a choice with what to do with it. You're going to build your life somewhere. Some of you are going to build your life on my teaching. You're going to build your life on my theology, and that life is going to be a house. Others of you are going to build on another kind of thought, another idea, maybe your own, maybe some other religion, maybe some other worldview. You're going to build, and that's going to be like shifting sand. Storms are going to come for everyone. Trials are going to come for everyone. Temptations are going to come for everyone. He said the house built on shifting sand, built on the shifting spirit of the age in which we live, right? That house is not going to withstand trials and temptations. That type of theology is not going to lead to resilience in your life. It's going to be uh, destructive the trials and temptations that we go on. But if you build your life on the teachings of Jesus, if you build your life on his theology, right, you have a life that withstands, that perseveres, that endures a life that is resilient. Jesus taught we develop resilience through good theology. Now, the author of Hebrews is leaning into that with uh, these churches that he's writing to. As we have looked through Hebrews, we have seen that hard times can lead to hard hearts. That hard circumstances can make us hard of hearing. Hard times can also bring us to hard places in our faith. Specifically, seasons of doubt, disorientation, and deconstruction. Scholars believe that the Christians to whom Hebrews was written, that they were in this type of season. They were doubting Jesus and what it meant to follow him. They were disoriented about convictions that at one time they had held so tightly. They were deconstructing the foundations of their faith and things that at once seemed so solid and so clear were now shaky and under pressure. We as a culture, if you fast forward to 
our generation. If you look at Western civilization, America and the like, for the last 300 years, we have been in a movement of deconstruction, of doubt, and of disorientation. This movement is focused on dismantling all external sources of authority, of meaning, of ethics, of values, and norms. It's picked up speed since the 1960s, and whether we realize it or not, you and I, we marinate in the waters of deconstruction and doubt every day just by virtue of where we live and when we live. And my guess is that many of us can relate to hard times bringing us to hard places in our faith, to seasons of doubt, disorientation, and deconstruction. Not just generationally, but when we go through things, we go through times where we doubt Jesus and what it means to follow him. Times where we feel disoriented about where true freedom and life seem to be found. Is it really found in Christ and Christ alone? We begin to think it's found elsewhere. In times where we deconstruct beliefs that at one time we held so foundational. We've seen this over the last few years in the world of the church. It seems like at every turn, people are talking about doubt and deconstruction. And Pastor A.J. Swoboda, who's a pastor in Portland, wrote an interesting book that I'm reading. I'm not finished with it. I don't know my full thoughts on it, but he talks about after doubt, and he talks about what his experience as a pastor in Portland have been, and I thought this was really, really powerful. I want to read you a little bit of it. He said, within the church... We typically have two responses to times of doubt, disorientation, and deconstruction. If you grew up in the church and you grew up more in a conservative church, a more fundamentalist church, this is what he said. Uh, conservative Christianity wants us to believe that doubt and deconstruction are inherently bad, a pathway inevitably leading to the cliffs of apostasy and faith abandonment. This extreme denies that deconstruction can be a legitimate place to encounter God. Here, deconstruction is characterized as an all-out assault from the forces of darkness on truth, church, Christian culture, and ultimately the gospel. If we really had faith, they would say we wouldn't have doubt or questions about it. Then he contrasts that with churches that kind of get labeled as progressive. And he said this, the, the, the theological left can be just as destructive. The ideology and spirit of a good deal of progressive Christianity almost requires us to undo traditional Christianity as a kind of compulsory experience. This is the sign that we've evolved or been liberated. Emerging from this seems to be kind of a laissez-faire approach to historic Christianity one that rejects Jesus as the only way to God, while seeming to suggest that doubt and deconstruction, ironically, are the only way to God. Here, the Enneagram has more weight than the words of Scripture. Selah. Podcasts trump one service to the bride of Christ. And theology is acceptable so long as it's sanitized of anything that might offend a Sunday afternoon audience on NPR. Both sides miss the boat, he says, and I agree with him. The goal for us in times of doubt, deconstruction, and disorientation, and I imagine that many of you are there or have been there 
or may be there in the future or have someone near and dear to you that you care about, right? Our goal is not just to shut the door and say, man, we're just going to ignore that. And if you had any faith, you wouldn't doubt at all. And we're not going to swing the other way either. We believe that life and answers, hope and healing are found in the person of Jesus. We're not interested in being a conservative church or a progressive church. We're interested in being a Jesus church. And Jesus is amazing in the area of doubt, disorientation, and deconstruction. Jesus' life and ministry, uh, what he does when he teaches so much, he's a master deconstructionist. He's always going around saying, you've heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard it said, but I say to you. He's constantly taking things that people believe and say, hey, this is what you've heard, right? But here's what I'm saying, and here's why. He's deconstructing people's thoughts and thoughts about God, and he's taking them and making them more complete, more whole, more good, true, and beautiful, more aligned with God as he is. Jesus is constantly ministering to people in the midst of deconstruction, doubt, and disorientation. One of his apostles, Thomas, we know him as Doubting Thomas. How he got that nickname, I think, is unfortunate, because I think if we're all honest, we've all been through places of doubt. And in Thomas's doubt, Jesus didn't look at him and say, why don't you get your act together? If you actually had any real faith, you would already know this. No, what does he say? He says, come here, come here, see my scars. Feel my scars. He invites Thomas in. He says, touch right here. Touch right here. You know where Thomas went? Church tradition tells us that out of these places of encountering Jesus in the midst of doubt, deconstruction, and disorientation, that Thomas went on to become the apostle to India. There are Christians in India 2,000 years later who trace their faith in Christ to Thomas. And he gave his life. He was martyred by spear in India the one that's known as the doubter, encountered Jesus in the place of deconstruction. And there, his faith was rebuilt, and he was sent out to change the world. The author of Hebrews is a master of the way of Jesus. And he here in these passages walks this church through what to do as they're going through their own doubt and disorientation and deconstruction. And he does it using the way of Jesus. I left this out, but I want to make sure that I say this. The way that Jesus walked and both deconstructed and met people who were in the midst of deconstruction was by showing them his goodness, his truth, and his beauty. Those were his tools. His tools, like to Thomas, come here, come touch my scars. Come see the wounds that I have for you. He's constantly going to that place. And he doesn't just deconstruct and leave people in ashes, but he's a master reconstructionist as well. And he takes broken things and he makes it beautiful. He takes shattered glass and he turns them into stained glass cathedrals. Jesus is a master of deconstruction. And good news, he's a master of reconstruction on the other end. And a reconstruction that more accurately reflects his goodness, his truth, and his beauty that's found in him. Amen. So we're going to read uh, this section in Hebrews. And the reason why we're going here is I know that for many of us, we are going to go through seasons of doubt in our life. 
We're gonna go through times where it feels like things are deconstructing around us, or you're gonna have someone in your life who is going through that same thing. And what I wanna point out is this is a normal part of following Jesus, that this is something that people of Jesus have encountered for generations upon generations. We're not the first generation to come up with this or to go through this. And as we read in Hebrews, we see the way that Jesus deals with and the author of Hebrews deals with people in the midst of doubt, disorientation, and deconstruction and the way that he rebuilds them and helps them to develop a better theology, a good theology that leads to resilience. First one that he attacks in this passage or that he speaks to, attacks is actually the wrong word because he's actually not very attacking here. He's clear, he's kind, right? But he's meeting people where they are. Uh, He speaks to the deconstructing and reconstructing of their view as Jesus as priest. Look in verse 21. It says, since we have a great priest over the house of God. Verse 21 is a summary of the arguments the author of Hebrews makes in chapter 7, starting in verse 1 all the way through 8, 6. He spends that whole chapter talking about Jesus as the high priest or Jesus as the great priest, and here he summarizes that thought. And what he does in the chapter 7 and into 8 is he deconstructs their theology of priests and points out where it's insufficient or incomplete when you have to account for the weight of the goodness, truth, and beauty of Jesus. For the disciples to whom he was writing, priests were an essential part of their religious upbringing and were a culturally accepted norm in their culture, which would also mean culturally accepted. I have that twice. I realized that. Uh, And as their faith was being shaken, they were viewing Jesus as one priest among many instead of him being in a class all his own. They were evaluating Jesus through the lens of their upbringing. They were in this pressure, they were in this trial, they were in this temptation, and they start having these questions, these doubts. Is Jesus, who is he really? Maybe he's just like one of the priests that we've known, one of the priests that we grew up with. He's just another way, one of many. There's nothing exclusive about him. Maybe he's just, maybe that's who he is. Maybe he's like the priest that we've known, and they're having these genuine questions as they go through this period of doubt. And the author points out that if their beliefs about priests were a load-bearing wall, they would crumble under the beauty of Jesus. You see, their theological beliefs about priests in their day were built on priests being a thing of heritage. You became a priest because of the family that you were born into. I talked with a gentleman at my son's soccer practice who is Hindu, and we were talking about his beliefs and his family and that sort of thing, and he told me that he was from the lineage of priests. That's what was familiar to the original audience. You became a priest because of the family that you're in, not necessarily because of anything unique about your relationship with God, your character, your life, but it was a thing of heritage. The priests in their day were mere mortal men who would eventually die, so you always needed a new priest for every generation. Their priests were interchangeable. Their priests were also sinful, so in addition to making offerings for the sins of their people, They also needed to make offerings for themselves. The author points out all of these things in chapter seven. And he says, all of these things make for a wobbly foundation. Jesus, on the other hand, was not installed as a priest based on his lineage being from Aaron, but he was a different kind of priest. He was installed not based on his lineage, but based on the the quality of his life. 
And though Jesus died, he rose from the dead and lives forever. So there's no need for a different priest. Jesus, unlike the priests of their day, did not need to offer sacrifice for his own sin because he was sinless. Thus, in Jesus, the author points out, we do not have a high priest who just happened to be there because of his lineage, a high priest that's going to go away uh, after a generation, or one that you're going to find out some scandal about what they did behind closed doors. No, in Jesus, he tells the church, you have a very different kind of priest, a high priest. He goes on to say, in Hebrews 7:26, and I love this verse, it says, for it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, the high priest is Jesus, who is holy, who is innocent, who is unstained, who is separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He meets them where they are. He talks about what they believe, and then he presents Jesus to them, and I present Jesus to you. Church, we have that kind of high priest. And I realize in our day, in our culture, we don't really think about, well, am I going to go to another quote unquote priest when we're in times of doubt or disorientation or deconstruction? But I would submit to you that we're all looking for priests. We're all looking for, man, let me find that podcaster that really they enlighten me to a new way or that Facebook group, or if we're too old or too young for Facebook, rather, that Twitter thread or that Snapchat group or that whatever, we find those things, that podcast, and we begin to turn to it, that author, and we look to them to mediate our relationship with God, to explain to us another way. And Jesus becomes a voice, but the bigger voice in our minds, the words that we're more familiar with, or as Swoboda said, when, when the Enneagram carries more weight than scripture, Right? We begin to gravitate toward other voices. We begin to listen. And I want to let you know all those other voices are mere humans. They're going to be here today and gone tomorrow. Might find out some scandal that they're involved in, but even if one never arrives on the news, we know that every person is sinful and broken. But Jesus is not, He's innocent, He's holy. He's exalted above the heavens. He's the high priest that you need. He's not just any normal priest. He's a high priest. And I want to let you know as your pastor, and I want to speak for every other person who claims to speak on behalf of the Lord. I'm only good at my job insofar as I point you to Jesus. I'm only good at my job insofar as I help you to become more familiar with his words and his ways and his voice, Right? That's the type of priest that you and I need. And I want you to remember when you are in a period of doubt, when you're in a period of disorientation, when you're in a period of deconstruction, you need to go to your high priest. You need to go to Jesus. You need to look to him. You need to do what Thomas did and said, you know, I'm doubting. And Jesus is like, put your hands in my scars. That's what the author of Hebrews is pointing out to them. And that's what I want to point out to you. Second, what place that he takes them through in the area of deconstruction is deconstructing and reconstructing their view of Jesus' sacrifice. Hebrews 10, 19, it says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, speaking of the sacrifice of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up through the curtain. This is a summary of chapters 8, 13 through 10, 18. In those chapters, he deconstructs their religious upbringing about their theology of sacrifice. And he reconstructs a more complete theology 
as Jesus being the better sacrifice that they had needed. The religious life in which they grew up was marked by sacrifices and their temptation to return. They would have considered going back to their familiar place and way of sacrificing. But the author deconstructs their beliefs about sacrifice and points out their sacrifices were impotent to actually bring about change in their lives, to bring about healing and cleansing from sin. And they had to keep being offered again and again and again because of this. And these categories were insufficient when it, comes, when it is compared to the sacrifice of Jesus. The sacrifice of Jesus was different. It was a different kind of sacrifice. It actually has the power to cleanse and to heal from the inside out. Verse 13, it says, the goats of bulls and ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, it sanctifies them so they might be outwardly clean. How much more than the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. He teaches them about the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Jesus. When they compared that to the sacrificial systems they were returning to to deal with their own brokenness and pain and sin, it just doesn't hold up under the truth, the goodness and the beauty of who Christ is and what he's done. So he deconstructs what they believe about sacrifice and he reconstructs a more whole, complete picture in the wake. In addition, when we go through times of doubt, disorientation and deconstruction, we can drift to other priests and Jesus becomes one among many. We can also drift to other sacrifices to deal with our pain, to deal with our brokenness, to deal with our dysfunction. If we were to survey the room, we could go around and name some. We'd name, oh, we start uh, looking to alcohol too much to bring healing and relief from the pain. Or we look to whatever, more time on social media, more swipes or more relationships or a new relationship or a new job. We have all these ways of medicating the pain and the brokenness of our lives when we go through these times and we start drifting to other sacrifices to bring healing. And while they may bring relief in the moment, they may bring a numbing for a moment, allow you to check out, the same is true for us as was for them in their day. They don't really heal. They don't really deal with the issues of our hearts. They don't have power to change us. But the sacrifice of Jesus is different. When we come to his sacrifice, there is power for the pain and the sin and the brokenness in our life to find forgiveness and healing in his sacrifice. So when we sing nothing but the blood of Jesus, we're seeing the power of his sacrifice is enough for the pain and the sin and the rebellion and the brokenness of our lives. Every other pseudo sacrifice, every other man-made sacrifice that we look to for healing melts in comparison, deconstructs in comparison to the weight of the glory and the beauty and the majesty and the truth of the sacrifice of Jesus. Now, I'm preaching today. I want you guys to preach with me. Here we go. Third one, he deconstructs and reconstructs the covenant. He says, with a sincere heart and with full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. In this verse, he's summarizing his argument from Hebrews 8, where he shows them that their beliefs about covenant and covenant was just their kind of way of relating to God, their contract with God, if you speak, so if you so speak, the, the terms of their relationship, their DTR with God. He goes through what they were considering. 
And he reconstructs their theology with the truth that Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant than they had believed. He notes how the old covenant was unable to change their hearts, but the new covenant that Christ is the mediator of has power to change them and heal them, not only them, but the entire world. Hebrews chapter eight, it says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. That's heart change. I will be their God and they will be my people. And they shall not teach each one to a neighbor. Each one as his brother would say, know the Lord. For no, they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. This is the covenant of Jesus. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of this new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So in their doubt, in their disorientation, in their deconstruction, they're reverting back to redefining their relationship with God. They're going back to old ways, ways that would have been more socially acceptable in their day. Or as the quote I read earlier, it would have been sanitized enough to play on Sunday afternoon on NPR and not raise an eyebrow, right? That's what they're drifting back to. But he's pointing out, he said, the covenant of Jesus is so much better than a self-created, self-defined, let me just pick a form of religion. And the Holy Spirit would say that to us today. So often when we go through times of doubt, disorientation, and deconstruction, we gravitate toward kind of a... Uh, self-made DIY religion. We take a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of this and we throw it all together and we come up with something. But listen, I've got something better for you. I've got a creed and a faith, not that you make, but that makes you. That's what Jesus brings. That's what he's saying. I'll say that again. Not a creed or a faith that you kind of assemble and you put together DIY. No, no, God's ways are so much better. And he brings to us a covenant that he made And that when we receive it, it makes us anew. So Jesus meets them in their doubt. I mean, the author of Hebrews and Jesus meets them in their doubt, in their disorientation, in their deconstruction, and he's rebuilding them. Now, if you look back at our passage in Hebrews 10, as we close, here are the implications of this new theology, of this good theology, of what comes out of these places of doubt, disorientation, and deconstruction. He meets us there. And this is what comes out of it. He says in verse 22, he says, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart. In light of these things, now let us draw near to God, right? One of the things that comes out, one of the places where we develop resilience through good theology is that we have a life that draws near to God, not in starts and fits. And well, I did that for a little while and then I fell off. No, this consistent drawing near to God, a life marked by the presence of God. He said, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart. And with full assurance that faith brings, that's what good theology brings. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from guilty conscience and our bodies, uh, having our bodies washed with pure water. Verse 23 says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we professed for he who promises faith. That's the second thing that good theology brings, how it helps us to be resilient, right? Is it allows us to hold on to hope. How many of you know in trials and temptations, it's so easy to let go of hope. But when we have good theology, when our theology is rooted in who Jesus is as our high priest and him as our sacrifice in the covenant that he made for us, we're able to hold on to hope when things are hard. 
And in verse 24, it says, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Third way that good theology develops resilience is we live a life of love. We're not consumed with ourselves, self-absorbed with ourselves, but our thoughts and our minds like, man, how can I spur someone else on? How can I encourage someone else? How can I be about someone else? And to live a life like that with endurance. So when we develop good theology, Jesus-centered theology, theology that carries the weight and the glory and the beauty and the majesty and the truth of Jesus as best as human words can put it into language. When we come back to that and we carry that and we invest in that, it empowers us, it strengthens us to live a life of drawing near to God, to live a life of hope, to live a life of spending ourselves on behalf of others, exhorting them, encouraging them toward love and good deeds. Woo! This is awesome. So I want to invite you to stand. I realize this message hits in a lot of different places. And I realize that my words are imperfect to match the experiences that everyone has gone through. But what my hope is, is as we're here, more than anything, wherever you find yourself on the pendulum of doubt or disorientation or deconstruction, if you don't walk away with anything else today, what I want you to walk away with is find your place in the face of Jesus. Come to Jesus in your doubt. Come to Jesus in your disorientation. Come to Jesus in your deconstruction. Come, look at his face. Put your hands in his scars. Let him meet you there. And as we, as a church, as we invest in and cultivate and build upon good theology, right, regardless of the trials and the temptations that come our way, we're gonna find the resilience we need to be able to withstand, to build those lives built on the rock that withstand the storms of life will find resilience. Our worship team is gonna lead us in response here in just a moment. And our prayer and prophetic team uh, is gonna be available. Our staff and overseers available to pray for you. Specifically, people we wanna pray for today is if you are in a period where you would say, man, I'm in the midst of doubt and deconstruction and disorientation, we wanna pray with you. We want this to be a church where you can talk about those things and you can bring those into the light. We want to be clear that we're going to make our best effort to bring you to Jesus, to show you Jesus, to talk about Jesus. We're going to be who we are, but we want to be a place where you can be on a journey. Because if we're honest, we're all on a journey. We're learning and we're growing. I know so often when we're in those places, it just helps to have someone that we can share with, we can pray with, that we can come to the Lord with, and our team will be here available for you for that. Second one is if you have someone in your life that you care about, that you would describe, man, this is where they are and I just feel so burdened for them. We wanna pray with you for them, that God would give you wisdom and how to love them, how to share Jesus with them, how to be a friend with them, that he would give you his power and his spirit. And I imagine those two things cover everyone here in our congregation in the room or those worshiping online. So if I can get our staff, our overseers and our prayer team to come forward, I'm gonna pray. The worship team is gonna lead us. Let's go before the Lord with these things. Jesus, thank you, God, that you are a master at deconstruction. Thank you that you know us better than we know ourselves, Lord, and that you come in and with the weight of your truth, with the weight of your beauty, with the weight of your goodness, Lord, you meet us where we are, but you don't leave us where we are. You challenge us, you teach us, you say, come here, look at my face. Come here, put your hands in my scars. 
you deal with us in our doubts, Lord, in love. And you meet us, Lord, and you reconstruct us. You make broken things into things of beauty, Lord. So I pray for all my friends here, Lord, wherever they are on that spectrum, whether that would describe them or they know someone that they just feel burdened for, Lord. God, I'm asking that you would come and move. You would do what only you can do. You'd do more than what we can as humans when we gather, Lord. But by your spirit, Lord, you would release hope. You would release wisdom. You would release power. In Jesus' name, that we would be a people who develop good theology and by so doing, develop resilience. We love you, Jesus.